Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Burned by the Firewall. I'm your host, Mike Krupka. And today we continue our Women in Cyber guest list with a very prestigious individual who I am thrilled to have on the show. With me in our virtual studio, I have the Deputy Director of Intelligence for the Indo-Pacific Command Center here in Hawaii, Ms. Katherine Johnston. Ms. Johnson, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on. Thank you. I am I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to talk about these topics. Right on. So let's let's jump right into it. Um, I gave the, the title away already to our listeners, but maybe you can give them a little bit more about who you are um, and what you do uh, at, at the Indo-PACOM. All right. Well, I, along with Admiral Mike Studeman, uh, oversee all intelligence for the Indo-Pacific Command, which is a command that, um, that covers, uh, gosh, uh, half of the earth. Uh, all the way, uh, all of the Indian Ocean, all of Asia, all of the Pacific. And we uh, cover all aspects of the problem, um, all aspects and all domains. And in the DOD parlance, that includes the cyber domain. How did you end up getting to your position? Like what, what was your journey and how did you sort of set your sights on, on cyber being the, the field that you'd be, you'd be in? Yeah. So um, I actually, my journey begins at birth. My, uh, my dad was uh, a Chinese linguist and worked with the Central Intelligence Agency as a director of operations officer. Um, we were, uh, so I was born on Taiwan. I grew up in East Asia. Um, I grew up every place there was a major overseas Chinese community. Um, so the consistent parts of my life and my background really were all about China. Um, so uh, once I, I went to uh, undergrad and graduate degrees in Chinese studies, um, and then following that, I started with the Defense Intelligence Agency as a China analyst. And then I kind of went back and forth between uh, science and technology, weapons of mass destruction, uh, missiles, stuff like that, you know, and uh, Asia uh, political security. For a period of time, I moved over to the Central Intelligence Agency and the Director of National Intelligence as uh, the mission manager, which kind of pulls together all of the intelligence community and focuses them on certain areas. I then went back to DIA as the director of analysis, where unfortunately I did very, very little China. I did a whole ton of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but I did do a lot of cyber. And so your question was, how do you, how did I end up in cyber? It's pretty much impossible to study China and not end up in cyber. Um, the, 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 the earliest and most significant attacks on the United States, uh, well, I would say the earliest were probably coming from Russia, but the most persistent, the loudest, the most numerous were all coming from China. Fortunately, for a long period of time, they were pretty loud and they were stealing a lot of stuff. And we were just um, um, blind or not caring or really underestimating the extent to which they were going to be able to um, process and take advantage of what they had stolen. But um, that remains uh, the biggest existing existential China threat today. And I'm going to I'm going to kind of shoehorn in a question here that that ties into what you just mentioned, because I'm curious from just from our standpoint, at, at what point do those type of act, those type of actions, those types of intrusions, is there is there like a line in the sand where they become something more than just what sort of like an espionage type of activity where it becomes more of maybe not an act of war, but is there a line in the sand that you guys draw that you could speak to? Yeah, so that's a really excellent question. Um, you know, the focus of your question was the difference between offensive attacks, cyber attacks, and cyber espionage. Um, and all the countries in the world basically do right. cyber espionage. Uh, what the Chinese 
have done and you know most recently the you know the most recent russian attacks have done is a matter of scale uh the scale of what they what they've done um really transcends anything that um that any other nation has done the other thing that is different about what the chinese did um especially in the early years was that their focus was on the commercial sector their focus was on private companies and stealing intellectual property and then taking that back and giving their own companies a uh, a market advantage um and that included market advantage in um bidding wars it included market advantage in terms of stealing the technology so they didn't have to invest in the r&d all of that sort of stuff that's a that's a very different characteristic from what you see really any other nation state doing um most nation states you know when you look at the attacks that uh that have just come out very recently um you know the attacks are on government agencies that's really where nation states have a tendency to focus so you know i do kind of want to draw a distinction there um so offensive cyber attacks aim to uh disrupt destroy hold hostage those sorts of things criminals also do offensive cyber attacks um usually to blackmail or to gain some kind of monetary advantage or to um disadvantage a competitor uh you know in the in the commercial world um the um what we are particularly concerned so you know any and all of our weapon systems uh can be vulnerable we try to make sure they're not by you know having firewalls and separate networks and separate everything having redundancy doing being smart but you know everything can be um it, it can be vulnerable but the thing that concerns us the most is the um vulnerable underbelly of um of DoD operations which is our reliance on civil infrastructure so so the place where i worry the most about offensive cyber operations is in that sector and i know you're going to come back and ask a number of questions there when we are get into this a little further um so i'm going to i'm going to Uh, circle back and answer your question on is there a line in the sand uh i would have thought we'd have crossed the line in the sand a long time ago um it but what you open is a new um area of uh, of intellectual thought all around 21st century deterrence and cross domain deterrence it is a relatively new field and it's a field that we at Indopaycom are um are really wrapping our heads around um because deterrence conventionally deterrence we talk about deterrence as in in a nuclear cold war sort of construct right we think we're in a deterrence war today with the chinese we think it's a conventional and cross domain deterrence world we think that it's about um positioning ensuring the rules based order um which includes not stealing you know cyber ip right it in- includes all of that it also includes space which i know you're going to get into um and we think that um there's been some pretty sophisticated thought around this there's a lot more that the academic think tank and um security community needs to dedicate to this particular area. Yeah, it really feels to me anyways looking at the environment that we're in today because a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks at least based on what the public knows is it, we're sort of entering in almost like a reset of what the cyber community and policy is going to have to be in response to these things in an already fast changing field you know almost on a daily weekly basis things are changing and this is i think going to expedite that and and you had a great segue there and i just want to dive right into that reliance especially here in hawaii because i think well, i don't think i know we are the most remote place on the earth 
and there is a, a definite reliance, like you mentioned, on the vulnerability of what the, the public sector provides to the DOD. So can you speak to that relationship, I guess, specifically with the electric company here in Hawaii and the level of partnership that you guys have and redundancy and response planning and things like that to essentially avoid what, and, and you just said, and I'll paraphrase, is kind of like the worst day scenario for you. Right. Um, so yeah, the power company is particularly um, a particularly important partnership. There are a lot of others. Uh, telecom. Um, you know, there are there are logistics. There are a whole ton of um, of civil infrastructure companies that we are dependent upon to do really anything. And while Hawaii is um, incredibly remote, and so as a result of that we don't have a redundant supply of companies to partner with. There is one HECO, right? And HECO has a different network that is completely unique for every county, right? Um, so that makes it a, uh, there's no fail safe, right? It's, it's not like in New York, if the power grid goes down, you can draw on, you know, Canada, right? There's nothing like that. Um, we, are, we, we are what we've got. Um, the, the good news is that the state and the private sector um, uh, commercial providers have also recognized that. There's been a, over the last uh, three to five years, there's been a concerted education campaign with all of those um, industry partners and with the state, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Energy, um, to educate everyone on what that threat looks like and the fact that you know we are confident that that's going to be shot one right if if the balloon goes up in fact it'll probably be an indications and warning indicator one of the very earliest ones when things start to fail um the so so that's the good news um the other good news is that under the auspices of the state um we have an organizing body that is, um, I think it's called DKIC, uh, the Defense Cyber Initiative Consortium, I think, that is continuing the education, organizing itself for you know, that horrible day when it comes, ensuring that we have a redundancy to the extent that we can. Um, the uh, HECO in particular it is a really interesting partner for us at Indo-Pacific Command because um, um, because of the way that the federal government uh, networks with the various sectors, public sector sectors that we rely on, the, the partner for HECO is the Department of Energy. And Department of Defense, Department of Energy, and the intelligence community have long had a very close relationship where we've been able to pull data, pull resources, threat reporting and um, and begin to make um, some progress around uh, some of the threats to um, energy companies uh, networks so uh, we're working with our partners on the federal side and with HECO um, to try to uh, to improve our awareness of the threats that are on their networks now uh, and how to protect their networks. So I guess in, in addition to working with them to identify those threats on, on their networks, maybe what, what have been some of the challenges or the benefits yeah. that, that you've seen in working with the private sector? Okay, biggest challenge is data and sharing data. Um, and it's on multiple sides. Uh, so even when we have a company willing to give us their data, um, a lot of the data on threat resides in the intelligence community and the intelligence community is prohibited from uh, looking at, handling and acting upon data that a U.S. entity, about a U.S. entity. Um, so we have really, really strong um, oversight and compliance laws. Uh, and um, and reporting requirements that prevent us from um, taking that data and um, and without anonymizing it. Like if we anonymize everything and we pool everything, you know, together, then we can then then we can do things. 
what that gives you is broader trend data. So you can see this bad actor or this bad code um, has been used a bazillion times in these kind of uh, use cases. You can get that kind of, of, of broad general uh, you know, insight. What it, you can't do is say this particular piece of malware in this particular electric grid that does this particular attack is currently on your network. Um, that is very problematic for the intelligence community to do. Um, the other thing is intelligence sharing the other direction. So we have, you know, really good data on bad guys and what their fingerprints are and, you know, uh, what it looks like. Some of that data is collected um, in, in a very sensitive way. And so being able to break out that data to be able to provide it to the private sector, including our critical partners, um, is problematic. Um, I would say that Cybercom has done a fantastic job at, at doing this because this has been a really naughty problem. I've struggled with this problem for over five years. And I think recently you're seeing the results of Cybercom you know, releasing bad malware, bad actor stuff into the public domain um, in order to allow companies to protect themselves. Um, so it, it really is a data sharing problem both ways. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it's 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 good to hear from, you know, being on the public sector on that public side that there is that sort of go between that's developed in the last five or six years to sort of help, right, uh, escalate that the hygiene of the public sector, their their knowledge base, just their awareness, those types of things are are all lacking in the public sector. I think, in my opinion, across a lot of the, especially the small and medium-sized businesses. So that that's that's really good to hear. And I think this also ties into uh, a question that I have. It's kind of a two-parter. So the first one is, you know, your thoughts around how we can become more data-centric in our approach to cyber defense. And then this, this I think, ties into your sort of concerns. And that is, you know, what can we do about those those pesky or those naughty Chinese and, and Russian APT actors who sort of just shift around in your network so they can't be discovered. You know, I think those two questions sort of meld in together and I wanted to, to pose them together to you. Yeah, so, um, so I'm gonna take a bit of a step back and okay. first talk about um, um, the, the vulnerability landscape. So if you're a cyber actor and you're looking to penetrate, you know, any place, uh, first thing you're likely to do is, is just um, ping an adversary's network to see if you can find a vulnerable gate. So anyone who didn't, you know, update and patch, uh, you know, the, the, the patch that was sent to them, the pushes, right? Anyone who didn't do that, um, has now presented you with this with a with a potential avenue in, and if you can get in that way, um, there are ways to reduce your signature exfilling stuff out. Uh, it, eventually, it will be detected, but there are ways to make that quieter. Um, the so you know that's you know the first part of the landscape. See if you can find somebody who was stupid and didn't do the patch, right? Um, if you can't, if if no kidding, and almost always there is somebody, you know, so you are as strong as your weakest link. And, and you know, we all know our weakest links, right? So, um, but let's say that you don't have a weak link. You've, you've been successful and everything is patched and there's no easy way to breach. Um, the next thing, you might want to do is uh, hijack one of those updates that are coming. So go further upstream into a software supply chain and uh, try to manipulate a software supply chain, which has to, you know, in today's world is happening every single day. Um, and, you know, and see if you can't swim in that way. 
you know, if that doesn't work, then you might need to do um, a hardware supply chain. So those are hard. Those are those are difficult, but they're but you can embed something into a hardware that is going to go into the um, into the target space that you want to get into. And um, and and almost nobody does the kind of forensic analysis. In fact, I don't know any private company that does. I'm sure there are some. Um, the, the federal government on the IC side does do forensic analysis on hardware that's coming in to make sure that there's nothing embedded and hidden into the hardware before it gets plugged in, right? So there's there's that as a as a possibility because you know who very few people even know what to look for in that kind of a forensic attack, and um, nor can they afford to do that kind of a forensic analysis. Um, then the final way is then you recruit somebody on the inside and that's the insider threat. Okay, so I talked about four vectors there. Uh, it's impossible to protect against all four of those vectors. Um, the best you can do is reduce your risk on all four of those vectors. But if you are looking for a surefire, absolutely, this will not ever happen to you, that's not possible. There are um, monitoring mechanisms that can help you determine whether or not the policies and procedures and protections that you've applied to all four of those vectors are, um, are successful. You know, you can, uh, I mentioned before, if you want to, if you want to get in, you got to get data out. Um, and if you're looking at getting a lot of data out, uh, you're more likely to be detected. So you can be looking for um, for a large bandwidth exfil that will tell you that doesn't make sense, right? Um, but if you're if you're a smart adversary, you're going to figure out uh, ways to try to hide in the stream. Right. For each of those four vectors, there are um, there are things that you can do to harden the attack surface. And by absolutely, you should be hardening the attack surface. The one that is the most problematic, I would guess, for the private sector is the insider threat. For the intelligence community, you know, we sign a piece of paper basically consenting to be monitored. Um, for for the private sector, um, civil libertarians are and and average people are probably not comfortable signing that same piece of paper. Right? Um, and but if you don't have that kind of monitoring, it's very difficult to uh, to detect the insider. Um, and and really, what you're left with is monitoring the network to detect anomalous activity. Um, all of that by way of saying, how do we get ahead of the next threat? You have to assume that you've got a bad network. And if you've got, and you have to assume that, you know, so you have to go into it with a zero trust mentality. You should be encrypting everything on both ends. You should be encrypting at rest and, at rest and in transit. Um, you should be, you should be now um, starting to think about um, uh, quantum resistant encryption. We, we should be thinking about that today. Um, it exists. Um, it's, I think it's an inevitability. Um, it, it, it's probably, you know, decades away from being a necessity, but it will also take decades to implement. So it's not too soon to start thinking. Did I, did I answer your question? I, I think you did. I, I do. I think you did. And especially that last part has me intrigued because uh, that's that's something that I have not really heard much about. So it's going to go on my my homework list. So I appreciate yeah. that, that little nugget. Um, so what I would say is um, do some research on uh, Chinese advancements into quantum and quantum communication. And um, the other thing that I believe to be true, you know, there's a lot that's not known about quantum. But quantum encryption is an easier do than the actual quantum decryption, right? Um, so it's, um, but once quantum decryption comes, uh, which I think is, it's gonna, I just don't know when, um, it will go really fast. And, you know, upending our entire encryption 
um, system uh, is not going to happen fast. So just that last part that you mentioned, you know, upending what we do have isn't going to happen fast. I, I think this ties into, you know, cyber war or some something similar to maybe, you know, what the impact could potentially be once we get through all of the, the research here with the most recent um, incident. Um, and, and that is the solar winds attack that we, that we just experienced. Uh, so in, in terms of your team and the team that you guys have of cyber professionals, you know, what are you guys doing to coordinate the, the analysis of a significant threat like this? Okay, so, um, so cyber, let's start with cyber war. Um, you know, cyber war has been here for a long time. Um, uh, I, you know, think back to the Soviet uh, Crimea campaign, um, where the Soviets took out electric power to the Ukraine in the middle of winter. Um, so not only did they interrupt transportation routes so that the Ukrainian military couldn't mobilize, um, they then attacked the civil infrastructure with the intended purpose of politically damaging the Ukrainian political system and undermining their ability to govern. Um, so, you know, that 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 reeks of people's war, you know, right. that, that's a that's a um, but it was done with a um, with a non-destructive, uh, uh, you know, non-lethal weapon. Um, and it was not treated as people's war, uh, but it, it had incredible consequences on the population. Um, so the um, uh, do me a favor and repeat the first part of your sentence of your question. I was just curious how, how you folks go oh, about organizing, organizing. Yeah, coordinating yeah. your teams to, to respond to something like yeah. that. So we have um, so, you know, first of all, the Department of Defense recognizes the criticality of cyber um, as a domain and as a war fighting um, uh, segment, not even a domain as a as a whole type of warfare. And uh, and they have stood up cyber command. Um, we work very, very closely with Cyber Command. Cyber Command has um, uh, cyber mission teams literally all over the world, including some here in Hawaii, who work very closely with the Indo-Pacific Command. We have a separate team within our Joint Intelligence and Operations Center that focuses on cyber threat actors. So the challenge with cyber analysis is that you can see a cyber uh, attack, you can see a cyber actor, but figuring out who it is and figuring out the intent is incredibly difficult. So we we have a whole stream of reporting that you know says this bad actor got on this network. Um, then it's days, weeks, months, sometimes years later that you figure out that bad actor was the Chinese and the reason they did this was to put pressure on a, a company, a country, someone who was supporting Taiwan. You know, um, and I'm making that scenario up, but it's a very believable scenario. Uh, so we do all of that type of analysis, but the, the most difficult um, type of analysis is the one that is the most in demand. Um, what was the intent behind the attack? That is almost always late coming. Um, so how do we organize for it? The way that you organize for that kind of analysis is a combination between your cyber um, um, geek analysts who you know understand the ones and zeros along with your um, organizational analysts who understand the entities that are involved, along with your political, military, and security analysts. And all of that has to be partnered with our J6 colleagues who are the cyber warriors here at Indopaycom and with Cybercom. So it, it is a team sport. 
So do you guys do you guys do events or like tabletops as we call them here in the in the private sector where you guys get together and simulate uh, an attack or a response or a scenario and try to coordinate those those different apparatuses together to sort of point at this is you know this is the outcome that we want and obviously the more we practice as a team the better we get. So just curious do you, do you guys do that pretty often or is that uh, more of just as as needed? Um, so we do frequent war games and cyber attacks are a consistent part of every single war game. Um, the, where I think we could probably do more is in the, in the tabletops and exercises with the private sector. Mm. Um, it's because that's the, I mean, we war game the private sector all the time. We war game those kinds of attacks all the time. What would we do, um, you know, if X were to happen to, you know, pick a company? But right. um, but uh, developing the plan to go forward really is about tabletopping that, you know, as as an entity. Um, all of the commands, op, uh, war game, these kinds of cyber attacks. Um, at least once a year, usually several times a year, this, so that we can figure out how within the DOD, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, another example. So a conflict in the Pacific or any kind of a, of a event in the Pacific um, is going to impact Cyber Command, probably Space Command, definitely Transportation Command, because they're the ones that got to move everything. Um, definitely Northern Command, because all the stuff that's got to move is coming from the North American continent, right? Um, and probably half a dozen other entities. Yeah, there's just there's so many moving parts on 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 your sector that it's it's fascinating to me. So I appreciate you taking time to explain that. You know, that's a big operation, and there's a lot of moving parts. So I want to talk next about some maybe some cool stuff that you've okay. been part of personally and you know we talked about some of the different attacks um, that that we're worried about here a lot of us in in the it or or cyber field know a lot about uh the attack on stuxnet or the attack called stuxnet um it's truly fascinating what one of the first uh, attacks that really truly grabbed me and hooked me into cyber um I'm, I'm assuming you can't talk about a lot of details, but from a 10,000 foot view, was there any sort of um, uh, an operation that, that you can speak to generally that, that just was really intriguing to you, whether that was offensive or defensive that you can share with, with the, the general public or the listeners here on the show? So um, the one that took me the most by surprise was the Sony attack. Ah, yes. And the reason that that took me by surprise is that um, it became a U.S. intelligence community responsibility. So um, why would we be, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, I think we went into it thinking that that's a private sector company that failed to protect its, its own, that failed to do basic hygiene, right? Mm -hmm. That um, and you know they, that's what happens when you don't do patching, right? That's what happens when you don't encrypt at rest and in transit, right? So that's that's you know what happens. Um, it was intriguing to me also because it was um, you know so I do Asia, so the fact that it was North Korea in response to an attack on you know Kim Jong Un. Um, mm -hmm in order to blackmail and gain money when they're under such a sanctions regime, you know, that that in itself made it a pretty compelling and interesting, you know, story, not to mention all the titillating emails that were released, right? Um, right. But the, the thing that made that the most intriguing for me um, was it went from being a private company action to a White House priority and you, the IC, will be sending specialists there to figure out what happened and to help ensure that this doesn't happen again overnight. Um, and that, um, that 
made it clear to me that um, there is an expectation by the public that we will be part of securing the nation's networks, whether or not they are public or private. Um, it then opened up a whole series of really interesting dialogues on when is it a company's private responsibility to do something and when is it, you know, I am not, well, we, the, the U.S. government, should not be accepting liability for right. every private in a company that does not do basic cyber hygiene. That's just uh, unaffordable, unworkable, and not right, right? right. Um, but on the other hand, if we are privy to information that can help the um, American companies protect their IP, protect their networks, um, and we don't do anything to help either educate, form partnerships, provide some of those critical INW and those critical bad actor lists, um, then shame on us. And so it really, uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, it, it led to, I think, a, it started to lead to a sea change in how we regard our role in helping the nation protect its networks. Yeah, I think this ties into the, the whole BYOD and IoT of things question that I want to pose to you too, because that that same type of behavior or those same type of companies that are introduce, introducing these new type of devices are essentially escalating their risk and it's it's becoming even greater than the risk that we already had. So to your point, from a government stand standpoint, where is that line? You know, wh when do we accept responsibility and when don't we, or when do we help, when don't we help? Uh, so w what are your thoughts on on that whole genre of devices and, uh, and a lot of them being made not in America and being brought here? You know, what what, what are your thoughts of just yeah. in general about that? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, IoT and, uh, and um, you know, bring your own devices, uh, increase the attack surface order by many orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, so in that respect, they're a cyber uh, warrior's dream because someone is going to have an unsecured device um, yep. and you're going to be able to snake your way in. In my world, there are no IoT, there is no device brought into any of the facilities that I work in. Um, I take off my Garmin every day to come into work. Uh, I, as soon as I leave work, I put my Garmin back on because I want to count my steps. But I, I, I don't, we don't bring anything in. Um, that's becoming increasingly difficult, as you know. Um, be, be the sub commercial supply chain, if you try to purchase anything without Wi-Fi, and on it right now, uh, you can't find it. Uh, and you can't even find it on Craigslist anymore, right? It's supply chains have gotten to the point where uh, the only devices that are gonna be available have Wi-Fi. And that includes stuff like, you know, um, your crock pot. Um, so, you know, everything, everything. So, right. um, so I, I recognize that the um, the um, Neanderthalish approach that we currently use to um, to protect ourselves in the IC will not work for much longer um, because you know pretty soon those IoT devices are going to be embedded in my clothes and um, and you know so what do I got to wear something to work um, so you know so pretty soon. Uh, that is not gonna suffice. Um, what you can do is work to ensure that you absolutely understand what you're transmitting and when, and you should do that anyways, because you are giving up so much data on yourself from a, from a, um, uh, from a personal privacy and a civil liber libertarian perspective, you should be doing that anyways. You should be, you know, putting yourself on airplane mode unless you, um, need to be, you should be turning your phones off, you should be, you know, you should be absolutely 
valuing data on yourself the way that all those companies value the data on you. Um, you and you know, uh, which is a which is a whole nother topic. But um, uh, that's uh, and you should also be very much attuned to and aware of every device you bring into your um, your work or your personal home and whether or not it has an embedded Wi-Fi, what that passcode is and and whether or not you can override it and control it. Um, because if you can't, you shouldn't be buying it. You shouldn't be putting it. You shouldn't be plugging it in. Yeah, I. I wholeheartedly agree. You could probably see me vigorously head nodding along to almost your entire um, monologue there. I, I would get up on that same soapbox and 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 speak with you on all those same things. Uh, I think it's, you know, I grew up right on the cusp of the 80s and the 90s. I was born in the early 80s, and I could never imagine inviting people into my home as a child to listen into all of our conversations and you know, what am I watching on TV? You know, what am I doing here? And I can never imagine that. And it just seems so normalized now and people don't necessarily understand the risks that the the devices that are making their life convenient, you know, provide to, to them as a human. They, they don't realize it. And I think recently the whole realization that Facebook isn't really a good thing is is a revelation to me because we've been saying it for years and years and years as IT professionals get off of Facebook get off of Facebook there's no need to be on Facebook and then now the public is is starting to get fed the reality of it but I don't want to get too far off topic but it's just so interesting because it seems like the public at the same time they may know about things but they don't care about their data as much as they care about other things and that's a head scratcher to me and I'm sure to you in the community because they sh they really should be, and they don't understand the value that that data has to attackers or to people that want so, to use. What I really find fascinating is that um, they appear not to care about data when a private company has access to that data and is monetizing it, but mm -hmm. they absolutely care about that data if the U.S. government has access to it, even if the U.S. government has oversight protections which a commercial company does not have. Right. So it's it is an it's been an interesting mystery. It definitely definitely a mystery. Um definitely a mystery. But let's let's talk about something else okay. just because <laughs> I, I know your time is short and I don't want to get too too far off topic, but this topic or this question I think is a mystery for a lot of the community out there or at least a lot of the civilians out there. A lot of people joked about it. I, I don't think it's a joke. I think it's actually was quite smart, um, quite ahead of the, the times, if you will, or maybe right in line with the times. But talk to us about Space Command mm. um, and, and the role it's going to play in the military moving forward. Mm. Um, OK, so Space Command. Um, so first of all, there's been a Space Command for a long time. Um, it has been under the first under STRATCOM as an Air Force component, um, but we've had a, a dedicated space uh, element and a space command for a long time. It will become increasingly important, um, not just because we rely heavily on space, but because space is very quickly becoming militarized. Um, un unfortunately, um, the Chinese and the Russians in particular have, are investing very, very heavily in offensive space control capabilities. Um, and offensive space weapons. And um, there is a really, really excellent unclassified book that was put out by Defense Intelligence Agency within the last year on um, the, the threats to space that uh, kind of globally. And so if anyone is actually interested in the weaponization of space and the, um, and the adversary you know, footprint and what that looks like, the threat, um, th that's a, a really excellent place to start. Um, Space Command and Cyber Command are inextricably linked. Some of the most important and most vulnerable parts of space are actually on the cyber networks. And frequently what we are really relying upon from space is all about information. It's about sensors capturing information, relaying it and downlinking it. It's about communications. Uh, it's, you know, but 
space is the big information layer. And so um, it is really not possible to talk about space without talking about cybercom. And it's really, you know, um, it's, it's a limited utility to talk about the information space without talking about space command, although frequently people will. Um, so what's it going to do? Having a dedicated uh, space command, um, you know, they're in growing pains right now. Um, anytime you're, you, you, you uh, even though they've existed for a while, so you, we, we, we have the outlines of space command, but they haven't been a dedicated four-star joint command like they are right now. Um, they are um, they will provide an ability for us to really focus on space for us to um, think about not just the domain of space but the whole war fighting construct um, you know a, a, as an example of this um, when you think about operational intelligence at Indopaycom that's about where's the ship where's the missile where's the airplane you know that's that's what operational intelligence looks like. And those are kind of easy to plot on a three-dimensional map. Um, when you think about it in cyber domain, that becomes really complicated. But they're but but they've developed ways of being able to show um, an operational um, uh, uh, common picture, even in the cyber domain. There's Operational intelligence in the space domain is a new and growing field. Um, so one would think, because we have been tracking satellites forever, that you know that it's just a matter of knowing where all the stuff in space is, right? There's a lot of stuff in space. There's a lot of new stuff in space, and there's a lot of stuff moving around. And so, um, and it's like a long way out there. And um, and figuring out the conjunctions with with all of the new stuff that's happening really means that this is this is a difficult physics problem. Um, just trying to understand what the common operational picture is. So uh, those sorts of struggles are the things that that um, that Spacecom will bring focused attention on. Um, and you know, and then they'll develop. The right kinds of INW, they'll be able to indications and warning. They'll be able to see the trends and patterns that will allow us to better predict when adversaries are about to take a hostile action. Yeah, it's it's not like we can just go into the refrigerator and and see what's in there, right? It's, it takes a it takes a long time to get that inventory of space, and uh, I think. Yeah, it's 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 an exciting area. I, I'm I'm glad that you could share some some insights on that with us, um, and I, I look forward to seeing kind of how it continues to evolve and and what what different uh, again components that that we build out from this now. As you're looking ahead to the future, what are some things that companies in both the the private and or government agency sectors um, should start preparing for now that maybe they haven't prepared for? Well, I mentioned one earlier. I, I think quantum will be a reality in maybe two decades from now, but um, but I think it will be a reality. Um, and I think once the quantum compute is a reality, then the basic encryption structure of absolutely everything we do is at risk. And so it, it's not too soon to start thinking about um, what what a post quantum world uh, looks like. That would be that would be thing one. The other thing that I um, I would say is, you know, I, I mentioned the challenges to data sharing. Um, one of the things that that there's been some work on is um, is there a way that we can use a um, a public private partnership in a pseudo um, governmental entity to pool data? Um, so that we are better able, so that the private sector and private citizens can be assured that no government entity is going to see not non-anonymized and not yeah anonymized data, right? Um, that uh, and that the IC 
can be assured that sensitive TTPs, sensitive signatures, things like that will absolutely be protected. Because what we don't want is to reveal, we know this about the bad guys, and then the bad guys realize we know that, and then they change their TTP, right? So, um, so that's one of the things that's preventing the kind of sharing that we'd love to be able to do. So are there public-private partnership opportunities um, under the auspices of an independent you know, affiliation, an independent organization that can assure the data integrity and, um, and data privacy um, for both sides that can help us get beyond this data sharing problem. Um, the, um, so that, that would be you know, sort of another thing that I that I think from a policy perspective is something that we should be looking at. Yeah, I think if Alan Turing was still around, he'd be he'd be very excited to see where the world of encryption has gone since you know the Enigma machine. It's it's taken quite a vast uh, voyage. It's exponentially grown, and uh, it sounds like in the next ten or twenty years, it's going to continue to grow even more, which is exciting. And like you've mentioned, is also a, a great deal of work and sort of reinventing the way that that we protect everything. So um, again, really, really excited about that insight from you. I appreciate that. I, I want to get you to just share, if you will, any sort of closing remarks, any sort of resources. I know you, you mentioned a, a book earlier, anything that you want to plug for just the general IT uh, cybersecurity audience. Um, out there and any good resources or closing messages for our listeners? So one of the questions that um, you had sent earlier was um, how do we encourage more minorities, you know, into the STEM field? And I would say women also into the STEM field. So I think it's critically important we do. Um, no offense to anyone on screen, but there are far too many white males that dominate this space. They drive the standards in this space. They drive the behavior in this space. Um, I think that is unempowering to um, to other demographics, and um, and we ought to all be reaching out, recruiting, enabling, mentoring, and helping um, uh, minorities and women in the cyber field. Uh, I, I think we will we will have a much stronger system if we do. Yes, and and we agree here at Occamsec uh, that that's part of the, I guess the the inspiration that we had in, in, in reaching out and and being very lucky to to land folks like yourself. Uh, and we had Connie Lau on recently too, so I'm sure you're very familiar with Connie. Um, and uh, Jen Jen Sabas was on recently too, and I know you know Jennifer as well. So really really want to help echo that message out to the community. Um, we do see that we we recognize uh, and and agree to that. And so, again, we appreciate you taking all this time as a a female leader of such again prestigious levels to share your insights with us and your thoughts. And uh, just want to wish you and yours all the best. And again, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you guys have any comments or feedback, please feel free to leave it on our feed and let us know. And uh, look forward to. Tune in next time on Burned by the Firewall.